Hello and many thanks for tuning in to your regular Bible teaching program. Uh, we're called Search for Truth. I'm your host, John, and I welcome you as you join us for the second talk in our six-week series on lessons from the letter of James. Our Bible teacher, Brian, will be reading quite a few verses from James, uh, chapter 2 especially, so have your Bible to hand so you can follow the reading if you want to. But now let's hand over and listen to Brian. Thanks, John. As we've mentioned before in this series on the book of James, James doesn't tackle any very exalted topics, but still we should be grateful to him under God because he tackles some very useful and practical issues. For example, he's already in chapter 1 given us a clear and thorough treatment of how we can navigate through some really challenging circumstances. That's so helpful, for they come to us all at some time or another. Now, at the start of chapter 2, James begins his second topic, looking at how we should try to avoid partiality or favouritism. You see how he picks relevant issues, deceptively common situations, which raise real ethical problems. James begins this next piece of compassionate counsel with his typical way of addressing himself to my brothers. He says at the beginning of James chapter 2, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favouritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Well, it's an easy-to-understand scenario. We might recognise it in any one of a number of variations, but it always comes down to ugly prejudice. We are so easily impressed by the trappings of success and power, and it's sadly all too easy to ignore someone of a rather unkempt appearance, as if they were somehow less of a person. By making such a superficial evaluation, we set ourselves up, in effect, as judges. Judges with evil motives, no less, according to James. He continues his friendly advice as follows. Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonoured the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? James now tells them, and us, that a superficial assessment like one which favoured the rich was unreasonable. In fact, it was unreasonable on two counts. First, God has expressed himself time and again throughout the Bible in different ways as being on the side of the poor. God's law of liberty is good news for the poor, giving them a fair deal. And secondly, those whom these Christians were favouring were actually drawn from a class of people namely the rich, who were persecuting them at that time in the history of Christianity. So what sense did this partiality or favouritism make? None at all. But even so, we all know how easy it is for people to get sucked into the general trend of society, which is to be impressed by the celebrity status of the rich and famous. After all, does it not come down to being envious of their success, even if we don't like to admit it? James goes on, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbour as yourself, then you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin 
and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. This is where James brings an even more telling argument into play. God's Old Testament law had expressed itself firmly against partiality. To show favouritism, therefore, was nothing short of breaking the law. We should, of course, do exactly what the law of God demands. And to do what the law requires means that we act mercifully to the poor by not showing partiality. The law was quite explicit on this point, although James contents himself with the support of the general principle of loving our neighbour as ourselves. James then says if we fail to observe the law on what we might judge as a seemingly minor point, like showing favouritism, then we're actually guilty of breaking the whole law, which includes commands against murder and committing adultery. It's a bit like if one link in a chain is broken, then the whole effect and purpose of the chain in securing an object is defeated. So where are we up to? We now come to the famous statement with which James signs off this section. Mercy triumphs over judgment, he says. What exactly does this summing up mean? First, let's hear it again as James concludes his argument. So speak and so act as those who are judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God's law will hold us accountable if we distort it by discriminating in a way that shows we're not impartial. Often this last statement about mercy and judgment is detached from its context here and used as a kind of proof text to justify not acting in some disciplinary way, as if implying we had an escape route to allow us to avoid some problematic disciplinary decision. I've sat through some debates about which is the best decision to make or which is the best course of action to follow. Sometimes the choice splits between, on the one hand, pursuing a tough line which holds someone accountable for his or her actions, and on the other hand, extending what's claimed to be the more gracious Christian approach of simply overlooking any offence. Those who advocate the second option tend to quote the Bible by saying, mercy triumphs over judgment. These words are misappropriated if they're taken to imply that anyone could be more merciful than God is in the judgments he requires of us. Does this statement mean that while you're entitled to carry out biblical judgment, the even better or more Christian way is to mercifully suspend judgment? Well, surely the reference to mercy here is a reference in context to those who may or would have shown mercy to the poorer visitors. Such mercy rejoices over judgment. To show a merciful equality to the poor is far better than to discriminate against them by directing them to inferior seats as if they mattered a lot less to God than the high-class rich visitor. What about the word judgment? The judgment mentioned in verse 13 must relate back to the so-called judges in verse 4, meaning the people who were wrongly motivated to discriminate against the church visitor in poor clothing. Of course, there are obviously different ways we can use a word like judgment, and this was true of the actual Bible word used here. One expert in the original language mentions that it can, of course, mean a sentence of condemnation. 
but it can also mean an opinion or decision, especially concerning what's right or wrong. Even if the word judgment, in the sense of a condemning sentence, were retained as the preferred meaning here, it's not referring, as is often supposed by the way it's applied, it's not referring to any one person's choice or decision between whether to opt for a merciful rather than a judgmental act. The main issue in this section we've read has to do with not judgment, but discrimination. These early Christians were discriminating against poorer visitors who entered the church services, while they showed favouritism towards the impressively dressed richer folks. If we are to understand the statement, mercy triumphs over judgment, as summing up the whole case that James has been arguing in the preceding paragraph, then surely James uses it because the issue was that certain of the Christian brothers and sisters were holding opinions prejudicial to poorer or disadvantaged persons who might happen to attend a church service. They discriminated against them by favouring the more affluent-looking visitors by giving them better seats. In this view, it was better, in summary, James says, to be merciful to the poor rather than discriminate in favour of the rich visitors. Someone who acts mercifully will have less reason to fear that they themselves will one day be harshly assessed or judged. We are to act as those who keep in mind that one day we'll be judged also. If we act without mercy, we'll be judged without mercy. James, however, is not calling on people not to judge. I think it's important to stress that here because of the way this text is often misapplied. James is not saying they or we should not judge. He's calling on them to show mercy to the poor by not discriminating in favour of the rich. And he's reminding them that one day they'll be held accountable. We should always act with compassion, especially when we are required to carry out judgment. Here's the key point. James is not suggesting mercy here as being an alternative to judgment. Mercy is not an alternative to judgment. It's an essential and ought to be an inseparable companion of any judgment we are biblically called upon to make. The judgment of God's royal law was more merciful than the partiality they showed while ignoring it even as they flattered the rich. God's true mercy triumphs over human lack of judgment in unbalanced discrimination. In summary, this slogan affirms that merciful treatment of the poor, which is according to the law, requires there be no discrimination in favour of the rich. It's definitely not a case of mercy as an option to judgment. So next time you're faced with a tricky pastoral situation and some well-intentioned person says, mercy glories against judgment, remember, these are not choices for you. They're not alternative courses of action. You must always be merciful in the judgment you make so that in the coming day, when assessment is handed down upon you, you in turn will not have to fear harshness. I hope you enjoyed Brian's talk today. Now, if anyone has any questions or comments about what we've heard, Brian would be pleased to help. 
so just write in by post or email. Now, if you'd like to send for the booklet, which is a transcript of this whole series of talks, it's available free of charge. You can have more than one copy if you're going to use them for group study or, or perhaps to pass on to a friend. So just make sure to let us have your postal address and ask for the title Lessons from James. There are also back issues of other titles which you might like to download via the internet or order through Amazon. I'll tell you how to do this in a moment, but first here's our postal and our email address. Search for Truth, Church of God, Downing Drive, Leicester, LE5, 6LN, UK. And now here's our email address. It's sft at churchesofgod.info. You can also download uh, MP3 versions of some past programmes on your computer at www.searchfortruth.org.uk. This is our church website where you can also access other material and some more past titles of Search for Truth booklets are also available at Amazon, amazon.co.uk forward slash Kindle ebooks. And when you're on the site, just type in Search for Truth series in the search box and you'll find a growing list of transcript booklets there is uh, becoming available. So thanks for the privilege of your company today. It's been great to have you, and I hope you found the programme helpful. Next week, God willing, Brian brings us another study from the letter of James. So please join us, same time, same place. And Until then, it's very best wishes from Brian, from David, from our singers, and from me. So goodbye, and may God richly bless you. Yeah.